Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Shakespeare, cross-Atlantic rivalry, and half a dead sheep. Oh, my. And fans, two, count them, two special new features today on the Hidden History Happy Hour. But first, an answer to a mystery that we've raised with our fans, Alex. Do you know which one I'm referring to? There are so many. I'm not sure what you're getting at, Brian, but hi. Well, as you'll recall from Alex's last episode, Alex's first solo episode, although I stoically soldiered through in the spring and did mine thanking Alex for his contribution, Alex decided he needed to mention that I was on holiday. So as a result, ah, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> as a result, we asked our fans, where in the world was Brian? And I gave a pretty easy hint. So congratulations to those who have looked it up. But now we're going to reveal the answer and it's going to come in the form of a fancy new flask that I purchased on the trip, which by the way, got me stopped at security in three different airports. So for those of you that don't already know, I was at Lake Garda in Italy, which was an amazingly fun time. I know Alex, you've spent some times on the Italian lakes. This is my first time and it was great. I have, I, I think they're unutterably beautiful. Uh, my only preference would be that uh, lots of people didn't go so that uh, the Cognoscenti can enjoy it without the crowds. But I well, think that ship has sailed. Whether by design or luck, uh, Lisa and I got very fortunate because we came sort of at the end of the season. And right. so during the week, it wasn't very crowded. And Lake Garda is great. I don't know about the other ones, but you can get around almost everywhere on a ferry and you never have to. Yeah, it's the same with Como and, and Maggiore, which I do know. Uh, I, I, I Actually, Lake Garda is a lacuna uh, for me in my knowledge. I, I've not, never been yet. Uh, but one well, day I, highly, I hope. highly recommend it. And as one of our fans pointed out, it is the home of limoncella which is what was originally in this flask Ooh, but now no 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 the home of limoncello is capri and it was invented in anna capri definitely and for sure definitely. well let me revise and extend my remarks right. the only italian lake <laughs> town i know of named after lemons where they sell a lot of limoncella is limon on lake garda well i'll give you that <laughs> but the yeah, any the, the Italians are really strict on uh, the Appalachian style system, which is not what they call it, obviously, as a French word, but uh, whatever the origination rule is. And I, I am certain that Lemoncello is uh, from Capri. Well, I will look forward to visiting Capri, but I will tell you Beautiful. in the meantime, every single town on Lake Garda claims that they're the home of Lemoncello, in particular okay. Limon. Now, astute viewers will notice this is not Lemoncello in here, because honestly, I don't really like Lemoncello which is probably why I didn't know where it came from. This is, of course, Blue Run Bourbon his Whiskey, the official bourbon of the Hidden History Happy yeah, Hour. Yeah. Cheers, my friend. What Cheers. I am drinking some... Uh, excuse me, one second. Oh. I'm drinking some Trocken Riesling today. I'm drinking some dry Riesling, don't worry, uh, before you look at the near empty bottle. I had some help um, <laughs> having, uh, having that drink responsibly, obviously. Um, and uh, I just ooh, had... I just ordered it from a, a supplier. It's a, it's a first taste today, and it's uh, drinking extremely well. It's only from 2020, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's a lovely drop uh, called Donhoff. So if people like a Trocken Riesling, like a dry Riesling, I recommend that. 
rolling in just in time for in the U.S. the Thanksgiving holiday where people yes, drink indeed. a lot of that sort of thing. So well played. Uh, because I think it's basically uncivilized to drink out of a flask anywhere except perhaps at a White Snake concert. Switching over to the Blue Run in the more traditional glass. Now, viewers and listeners, first of our two new features today. And this is driven by my frustration at not being able to yet, in here in the United States, read the sequel to Lessons from History by Alex, more Lessons from History. It's not available. So in my multiple airport stops over the last 24 hours, I had to find some things to whet my appetite until Lessons from History came up. So here with the first of an occasional series of new features called Brian's Airport Books That He Hasn't Read Yet Book Club. And I present you first, as we're entering into the Halloween season, with this. This is A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. Have you heard of this book, Alex? I have not, but I'm interested to hear what, it, what it's about. So I have a personal tradition that every October, which is one of my favorite months of the year, I try to read some classic uh, horror literature. And of course, I have a Stephen King going, and I do the classics every year. But this year, in the airport, I found this book. I'm not even going to tell our listeners anything except for the cover endorsement, which comes from Mr. Stephen King, who says, and I'm quoting, a head full of ghosts scared the living hell out of me, and I'm pretty hard to scare. So well, that sounds very intriguing. Let's check out Paul Tremblay. I also have a certain affection for this book because a lot of it takes place on a reality TV show. Uh, one much uh, like now I've already our, worked on. Our listeners may not know, but you, why don't you mention your role on Hunted? Yeah, so uh, a few years ago, I got recruited to be a special consultant, story consultant on a CBS in America a TV show called Hunted, which people in UK will know because we stole it from the UK, like right. most of our reality shows. And uh, I was originally uh, asked to do a very significant on-camera role, um, but A, face for radio, but B, I realized about halfway through the auditioning process that because the way reality TV is edited, they could make me look like a real asshole. Now, as Alex will know, I don't mind being an asshole, but I want to decide when and where. So I took a behind the scenes role, <laughs> which was amazing, Alex, based on yours and my, uh, my uh, day job of, of right. privacy work, uh, because the show was all about government surveillance and could you evade surveillance for 28 days? And if you did, you got a quarter million dollars. I was essentially the judge, jury, rulemaker and executioner for the show. So if, for example, you were a fugitive, Alex, on our show, and you were making a phone call to one of your Confederates and our hunters, ex-CIA, ex-NYPD, um, ex-FBI, wanted to wiretap you, uh, they would have to come to me to get a warrant under the same conditions they would a real federal judge. And it was just an amazing experience. We shot 10 hours a day, 28 days in a row. You can still find it on Hunted. I mean, you can still find Hunted on CBS. I think it's on Paramount app. It's pretty fun. It's a good show. And two out of the nine couples made it. You told me a couple of things. So of course, also our great friend, Mike Cole, was involved in that with you. He wasn't was the, he? one of the stars of the show. Yes. Um, so if people haven't heard Mike Cole's episodes with us yet, uh, do revisit those. I was going to say, you told me when you were making it or just after that, it, it would blow your mind, perhaps especially because it was in the south of uh, your country that this was the case what people will do will go out of their way to do for strangers if someone just walks up to them in the street and says hey help me out and that was a big part of how people got away with it right yeah i think if the show had been filmed in let's say new jersey or new york city it might have turned out <laughs> quite differently but in uh yeah in uh, south carolina in alabama 
in Northern Florida, people would just, you know, walk up to strangers and say, Hey, and literally in one case, may I borrow your car for 10 days? And, and they, they said yes. and they took like a, I don't know, a credit card or something. And they just let them borrow the car. Cause of course the contestants couldn't go to a car, car rental place. Cause they knew we'd find them if they did right. that. So yeah, it could, was they, could they say to the person, look, I'm in a TV show or are they not allowed to, uh, to lift the veil? Well, as the rule maker, the rule was no, they're not allowed to, but you know, they have to sign releases and there's camera crews around. So in practice, they, they know. So it's a little artificial in that way. Um, helping, uh, helping the, the fugitives, but we, we tried to balance it out. So there were other artificialities that tried to make it equally fair for the hunters. And here's the amazing thing. And our uh, growing uh, group of U.S. legal scholars who watch the show will recognize this. There's a very famous quote uh, in U.S. jurisprudence about why you need a so-called neutral and detached magistrate, a judge from a separate branch of government to grant warrants. Uh, thinking of Mar-a-Lago right now might be a good case study, but we don't have time for that today. Um, and there's a very famous justice of the Supreme Court who said it's because in the pursuit of a law enforcement goal, the prosecutors and the agents can become overly zealous in their work. Even if they're completely honest, above board, right. trying to do the right thing. And God, did I learn that on Hunted? Because those hunters, Mike Cole included, Mike, if you're listening, uh, feel free to write in with a comment. Um, they were getting paid a flat rate for the show. So the fugitives only got money if they won the show, but the hunters got the same no matter what these guys could not have been more aggressive in trying really, to catch these fugitives. It wasn't about some reward. They just wanted to nail them. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was they wanted to not go back to their colleagues and their home jobs and, and be beaten we by didn't a bunch catch of amateurs. Them. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's amazing. I recommend it hunted. I think the British version might still be running. Uh, I don't think it's still running, but you, you can find it on the internet. No, no trouble. So watch hunted, check out a head full of ghosts by Paul Tremblay. Let us know what you think. And of course, if you haven't already, and I assume you all have, get your orders in for more lessons from history. Alex, do we know how many more lessons of history there'll be? 100. The 100. new book has 100, 100 stories in it. Round numbers. And can you give us a ballpark notion of mm, time period, continental versus US? Like, like, uh, like the first uh, one, there's uh, everything from some Roman uh, stories from... Uh, from that period of history, there's a story about um, Pharaoh and the Phoenicians um, through to very much late 20th century, um, almost present day. Excellent. Well, we're, we'll look forward to them. I have uh, seen some of them. I have had not. I have not seen a lot of them and uh, look forward to working them into the show. We've already had a few, as our viewers yeah. know. And speaking of which, please tell your friends about us. Encourage them to subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star review. Message us on Twitter if you have comments or stories. And most importantly, uh, suggest stories to us because we need the input because I'm sure there's going to be a yep. volume three, volume four. And even if there's not, the show's going to keep running. Now, we have some fun, entertaining, even perhaps uh, silly uh, stories we're going to tell today, but I want to return Alex to a serious theme that's been running throughout our show because of just the time in history that we're living. And that is the uh, Russia uh, Ukraine war. And among the many developments over the last couple of weeks, the uh, Ukrainian uh, military apparently has just utterly destroyed significant strategic sections of the main bridge between Russia and Crimea. And Vladimir Putin has declared Crimea 
and the annexed territories, and in particular, the Zaporizhzhia nuclear plant as quote unquote, Russian owned at this point. And this is very important and scary and dangerous because the Russians have gone out of their way to make the point that they will quote unquote, only use tactical nuclear or other weapons of mass destruction if Russian, Russia itself is threatened. So one worries, of course, that this is all in part a, an arrangement, a pretext after his uh, illegal invasion for Putin to be able to put the threat of nuclear weapons uh, more firmly on the table to try to get the West to back off in their support of Ukraine. And our President Biden made a statement this week um, that supposedly caught a lot of his White House staff off guard, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, in which he said uh, the threat of nuclear war of Armageddon, in his word, uh, has never been higher since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I feel like it's useful, Alex, for us to talk a little bit about this. As we get into it, though, I do want to say that not only are the Ukrainians incredibly heroic and doing great things with the help of our assistance, our two countries and others, and frankly, way beyond what I think even you and I, who predicted at the beginning that they would do a lot better than anyone thought, uh, they're doing better even than I think we thought. But right. they never have lost their sense of humor. And we'll oh, this... the internet is full of great memes about the President Putin's <laughs> birthday co coinciding with this new push from the Ukrainians. What a birthday gift. We, yes. Yeah, so they, uh, they, they, if, if it was the Ukrainians, they destroyed this bridge or parts of the bridge on Vladimir Putin's uh, 70th birthday. And of course, Putin had famously uh, boasted about the takeover of Crimea by himself driving a truck across that very bridge. And my favorite so far and if we can find this, we'll get it in the show notes, is the Ukrainian Ministry of National Security, I think it was, or National Security Council, posted uh, a photo of the bridge utterly on fire and also Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to Jack Kennedy. Yeah, it's great. But Alex, you are, uh, in one of your day jobs, you're in the business of strategic communications, among other things. And, yeah. and all kidding aside, I want to talk a little bit about the statement that President Biden made this week in which he, at a fundraiser, no less, um, significantly raised the stakes, at least in terms of how the White House was considering it. Now, we should be very careful to say that as far as any public reporting is concerned, the United States has not altered our nuclear posture at all. I don't believe Britain has altered their nuclear po posture at all. But still, this seemed to have catch a number of caught. This seemed to have caught a number of his advisors off guard. What do, what do you think about that statement as just a purely communications matter? There is nothing wrong with using any occasion to. You know, history is littered with examples of your presidents saying things, and you look down at the footnotes of where it was. It was some you know, Milwaukee fifty dollar a plate um, party event. There's, there's nothing wrong with using any event. If you were in the bully pulpit of the presidency, you can speak whenever you like. Um, and uh, wherever it is, it uh, doesn't matter. But you should take your team with you. And the thing about the Biden campaign that most strikes me isn't necessarily they were surprised, it's that they're, they reveal that surprise. Yes. And you reveal that surprise if it's happening often enough that it's not a one-off. Because if it's a one-off, you cover up. And you say, well, we always knew the president was going to say this, but the impact of it would have been lessened had we trailed it. And right. we're not in the interests of manipulating national security issues for our own PR. And therefore, we let the president speak in his own words. But, you know, this is part of a considered plan. They don't say any of that. The reason I don't say any of it is that it's happening all the time and your president is speaking off the cuff or is, is saying words that his staff then need to pass or say what the president meant was or walk back. Uh, and that's that's unfortunate. 
Um, I, I saw a clip, this is not to be frivolous, but I saw a, a clip of your president saying uh, the other day um, at a lectern, I want to say two words to you, made in America. <laughs> yeah. I, I Believe me, no scriptwriter wrote that. Right. So there are these he's not that he's not taking his team with him in the course of saying these things. And the, the point about that is you can vigorously agree with him, as I do, but a about the dangers posed by the Russians and b about the importance of iron resolve in opposing them and still think that these inside baseball issues of, of, uh, of whether he's got his thing, his ducks in a row, as he says, stuff matters, really matters. And part of the reason it matters is that your opponents are watching closely to see whether you're coordinated or if you're just on a, off on a frolic of your own. If you're saying something one day and might say something else the next, that it's not part of a coordinated effort. And that's why the president, for all that he can say what he likes, when he likes with the bully pulpit, uh, as in, you know, he can time his announcements and use whatever event to make the point it still needs to be thought through strategically and that's my one of my disappointments i'm afraid with your current president yeah i, who I strongly support vis-a-vis -vis ukraine yes as do i and I, I agree with that and the industry that you're in and to some extent some of the things i do we throw the term around strategic communications quite a bit but it doesn't get Here more really, strategic exactly than the potential of nuclear escalation and i think another problem with these off-the-cuff remarks and sometimes I think it's also good, too, to seem off the cuff, even if you're not. Right. But I don't know that the FSB and the SVR, the Russian intelligence services who analyze Biden and analyze the United States, are going to grasp those nuances. And you really have to, I think, when you're the president, know that every single word matters and has to be chosen carefully and might not be interpreted the way you want, especially if it's ambiguous. Yeah, that's exactly uh, exactly right. Consider the criminology that we undertook during the Cold War, where we analyze each and every little, who was standing next to whom yes. at, the, at the parades and so forth, and whether that meant they were up or down in the in the orders. You better believe, especially in this time when the Russians have gone so far out on a limb completely wrongly in their um, appalling invasion of, of Ukraine, um, that they are watching very closely to see what their foremost opponent does. And everything you do, you do telegraphs something to uh, that audience. And you should think about that and the way that they hear and receive it before um, sounding off. Not because you've got any sympathy for them, right. but because there's importance in them understanding your position and your resolve. After all, if they don't understand your resolve and they go too far, you may have to do things you really don't want to do. Right. Uh, one example that comes to mind is you better not say you have a red line in Syria if you don't really mean to enforce it. And yeah. you better not walk it back the next day after a chat in the Rose Garden with your national security advisor, but I don't mean to be catty about it. I think that was a bad mistake, but you know, it's in the past. One other thing, Alex, about the current situation in Russia and Ukraine, and this is another callback, uh, is to your uh, story that we did a couple of weeks ago of Jan Masaryk. Tell me if I said that right. You did, well, look, bear in mind, I get told different pronunciations, but that's how I would say it. That's the official pronunciation of the hidden, of the hidden history, history happy hour. hour. <laughs> So our, 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 our listeners and viewers will recall that uh, Jan uh, supposedly committed suicide while in the custody and control of the Soviet intelligence services. Is that essentially right? Broadly right. He was, of course, in Czechoslovakia. And right. the, Czech, the, the, the Czechoslovakians had their own mini-me mini sort of brother of the KGB. But yes, otherwise, he was, um, he was detained um, having indicated that he supported Czech um, acceptance of support from the Marshall Plan. And uh, he 
he flung himself out of a window apparently um which are high and hard the difficult to get to window ignoring the yes. weapon and the the drugs that he had in his in his room and so forth i mean clearly he was defenestrated uh but that's something that i has been happening right across russia isn't it i mentioned that for that very reason of mm. course i think uh we'll put we'll correct ourselves and or put it in the show notes but i believe as we speak we're in the 20s of of potential enemies high profile people oligarchs and of course in my country to the putin regime both um yes. tried to murder using uh, polonium 210 uh, so, sorry successfully uh, murdered someone using polonium 210 and then tried to murder somebody else using novichok wound up killing someone that wasn't their their target um uh, in recent times so uh, the uk is no stranger to these things i don't believe these are in any way, shape, or form intended to be stealthy. I think uh, Vlad no, might as well leave a business card on bodies. Which, I mean, just like using a state-refined laboratory to produce your weapon of choice. Polonium-210, they could narrow down the isotope and tell you where it was made. You might yeah. as well have, you know, I did this, signed Vladimir Putin. And I, and I think the, the relevance of this uh, for our, our listeners and viewers is this combined with the, what is at best nuclear saber, saber rattling by, by Vladimir Putin uh, is intended to show the West, among other things, it's intended to show the West that the guy really has no limits. Now, whether he does or he doesn't, we'll find out in the next few months, but he really wants us to believe, he wants our leadership to believe that he's all in and he will stop at nothing. Right. Now, having said all that, don't want to leave it in a doomsday scenario. We had uh, our friend, uh, friend of the show, Mary Beth Long, former Assistant Secretary of Defense, on some months ago, and we talked about the um, likelihood, percentage-wise, of a nuclear exchange. Uh, and I thought I was sort of on the high end. I believe I said nine or ten percent, and uh, Mary Beth at the time said twenty percent. And I think we should have her back on soon to see if her prediction's gone up. But people should realize also without minimizing the absolute horror and the horrific precedent it would set if Putin set off a tactical nuclear weapon in or around Ukraine, that that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to escalate into, uh, into Armageddon. But boy, it sure puts us a lot further down the road. Yes, it does. And it also make the, the other thing that it does, it makes it far more difficult to row back to any kind of compromise or and without undermining the Ukrainian cause. Of course, I believe that Russia should not occupy one inch of, of Ukrainian uh, territory. But if there is a compromise on offer at some point, which we may all pragmatically wish to get to to bring this conflict to an end, it's going to be far more difficult to broker if something as appalling and terrible has been done as dropping a nuclear weapon even putting to one side the harm it does and the, the catastrophic uh, damage and loss of life that would uh, be entailed by, by say, dropping it. So um, let us pray that doesn't happen. Agreed. And likewise, the other uh, flagrant violations of international law that Putin has committed since the last time you and I spoke together, Alex, one, these sham elections in the four yeah, Eastern republics, yeah. uh, which again, going back to my original point, gives him, in his mind, the, the the ability to say, this is Russia, and if you attack it, you're attacking Russia. Now, of course, the irony and the beauty of Zelensky's strategic mind is as those referendums were being signed and certified in Moscow, those sham referendums, the Ukrainian military was rolling back many of the gains that Putin had made in those very territories. 
Um, yeah, but, but it makes it dangerous, right? Because he does. It's a completely. I mean, soldiers going house to house collecting votes. The, the idea this is a, a, a ninety nine percent results. The idea these these were referenda is a farce. But um, and it would be amusing if it weren't so serious and dangerous. Uh, but it it in the minds of the madman, the minds of the person who's saying the you know, this is the pretext. It does make conflict more likely. And as we've said on the show before, the Russians are the only people who ever had use of battlefield nuclear weapons in their order of battle you know it's not the uh, ultra extreme the rest of us view it as they've always had it as a tactical should all a tactical nuclear should all else fail on the battlefield uh, resort and it, the trouble is if they it looks like they're losing in these um pretend republics now uh some my my biggest fear of all is that it doesn't come from putin is that it's some relatively low-ranking figure who's who's got the we've they've put the um uh, the control of weapons in the field and that person says well i'm damned if i'm going back to moscow to admit i lost this battle and nothing else is going to look like it's going to stop these ukrainians with all their western help and so forth boom well, yeah, I mean, you could almost, if you were conspiracy minded or a former intelligence officer, you could almost imagine a scenario. That's where the plan, if, right? If, yeah, if Putin wanted to do this with some level of deniability, right? He puts him in the field, he puts him under control of a commander, and then he orders the commander, do not give up this position no matter what. And he just right. shuts his mouth at that point. Yeah. And even if the guy later gets executed and the Russians say, sorry about that, uh, they drop the weapon. But it's just appalling, isn't it? Also grave in this moment of 8 October 2022 is Putin declaring that he, uh, the Zaporizhzhia nuclear plant is now Russian territory. And the IAEA, the International Watchdog Agency, being gravely concerned that the now conscripted Ukrainian engineers who are running that plant will not be able to keep it up and running, much less if Putin continues to shell it like he did early in the war. I mean, that... I don't, I'm not a nuclear physicist and I don't play one on TV, but I suspect there's a scenario where you would kill more people and contaminate more territory across more countries if that plant goes up than if he does use a tactical nuclear weapon. Well, I don't know about that. We should always remember, of course, that nuclear energy is remarkably safe and that the injuries and the deaths that resulted both from Chernobyl and Fukushima added together are still in the tens, right? It's still, they're not measured in the hundreds or the thousands. Um, and if the worst happened at that plant, well, it's very, very serious, right? But uh, it's still much uh, less harmful than many storms. And uh, whilst you can then measure the, out the output of it and the damage that it, it, that it has on the environment and so forth in lots of different ways, in terms of loss of life, we shouldn't lose perspective. Nuclear energy is still safe and we should still, we should be encouraging its uh, use. And yes, you shouldn't bomb it. You shouldn't mess around with it, but we shouldn't, we should also not allow this moment to be seized upon by those who've always wanted to deliver a message that yeah. we mankind should have less, put up with less, settle for less, use less, you know, that, that kind of message that we can't have decent quality of life anymore because um, their green agenda militates against it. Um, we shouldn't allow them to, to seize this moment to say there, I told you so. So there's a bit of that too. Agreed. And to put a finer point on that, if it is properly handled, i.e. not shelled by an enemy and controlled by the people that should control it, nuclear power is far better for the planet and far better for the climate than most many other sources. And I dare say 
based on your back of the envelope statistics about uh, Fukushima and uh, about Chernobyl, Chernobyl, that it's far less damaging than some fossil fuel cause in a day. And we can't, we know we're not in a position as a world to get off of fossil fuels right now, but if we're ever going to, I think nuclear has to be part of that solution and it can be made I safe. I agree. All right. Well, that was, um, you know, cheers. Cheers. Hoping, hoping we, we keep the world together. I think that's about as serious as I can be today. What about you? Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's lighten the mood. All right. So let's do a complete 180 from uh, talks of grave threats to the world and speak about one of, I think, Alex's least grave in the sense we've just been talking about stories. Now, what I'm talking about, of course, is creative differences. Now, this is an element that our show has never had. Alex and I yep. never have creative differences, okay? Just put that on the record. But what we do have is another element of this story, which is a little cross-pond rivalry. But at least ours is friendlier than theirs. Yeah. Ours, ours rarely turns deadly. And this is where we hit the audience participation of the show. Because as you listen to Alex's story, I would like you to think about, dear viewers and listeners, voting as to whether the British protagonist or the, Amer the United States protagonist behaved better in this story. Alex, creative differences. All right. Well, no one comes out of this particularly well, so it's going to be voting for the least worst, I suppose. Um, celebrity spats, uh, very popular in, uh, uh, in our media and not uncommon. Uh, and whilst there are exceptions, um, they tend not to lead to multiple deaths, as in the story that I'm going to tell. Edwin Forrest, with a homegrown stage star of the United States in a time when the arts in uh, America were establishing a life independent of your former colonial ruler. And on the other hand, William Charles McCready uh, was a famous English actor. Now, they were friends. But they fell out as they disagreed about who was the better Shakespearean leading man. And their dispute became a cause celebre, not least because it served as a kind of um, focal point in the wider and rather poor uh, relationship between the United States and the UK in the 1840s. Thus, you know, who was the better, for example, Othello stood as a proxy for Yanks and their allies bashing the Brits and for the Brits and their allies bashing the Yanks. And plainly, of course, things have changed a bit since. But of the two sides, it was the United States press that was especially vituperative at the time. Uh, there was also something of a class struggle in, involved in this, uh, Brian, because the man of the people forest uh, of the United States, Edwin Forrest, came from a kind of humble background. And uh, he was a kind of the snooty toffs prefer McCready and his elite feet uh, attitude. That was that kind of masculine, muscular approach taken by um, Forrest. Much like our show. Yeah, well, quite. We won't say who's who, of course. <laughs> but suitably for a champion of a young and vigorous culture, Forrest was, you know, really a bullient and kind of, uh, the kids today might say hench, a stacked muscular man. And he was, that was suitably for the, suitable for his uh, shtick. And indeed, suitably for the derided representative of the old world that had had its day, the old empire, Macready was much more kind of subtle and refined and gentle. Or, you know, defeat as his critics would have put it. MacReady repeatedly toured the USA. Forrester repeatedly toured the UK. They were in each other's backyards. We're better at this than you are, each tour basically said. So were and these I, kind of foreign tours standard or did they do it because of the rivalry? 
both. They, they were not uncommon. It was not uncommon to have a great star of the United States in the UK. It was not uncommon to have a great star of the United Kingdom in the US. But this was pointed. Right? So it wasn't, they were certainly amping it up. And at the beginning of that uh, dispute, you could charitably say that it was just basically that was external perception and that was the press whipping it up. At the end, it's what these men were saying themselves. It's what they were saying in, in the theatres. During McCready's second American uh, tour, Forrest sh- f- sort of shadowed him around your country and put on the same plays in the same towns in the same weeks that <laughs> McCready uh, was running. Forrest's final UK tour in the UK bombed and he blamed McCready. So he turned up to McCready's Hamlet and he loudly booed him. <laughs> and McCready declared, and this is this is where things go off the rails, plainly fighting words. He declared that Forrest was a man without taste. Oh, oh, oh. can you imagine? Such I a mean, thing? your handbags. I never. Uh, right, so thus far, they're just like, you know, lads in a bar trash talking each other, but they're never going to. Well, and also a, both a, a benefiting from the rivalry. Right? Oh, hugely. Yeah. Uh, the press covers this. And, it, you know, you might think this dispute is just actually, you might even have thought they has manipulated this to generate some publicity. But, on McCready's third, and I point out final American tour, half a dead sheep was thrown upon the stage. Uh, what I don't know, I still don't know why I wrote in my book half a dead sheep. I don't know what people would have thought otherwise. But anyway, half a dead sheep was thrown. Do, upon do you, the do stage. you know which half, Alex? I, I do not, and I don't know what happened to the other half either. So it's a bit of an incomplete story. Uh, I don't know what time well of year it was, but it was obviously sweater weather. Well, either way, let's agree. Boom, boom. Let's agree that uh, half a dead sheep arriving on your uh, four stages is the sort of thing that can really put a chap off his soliloquy. It's also um, not a light lift. Like, that no, has to I, be well, presumably it was like two or three guys yeah. giving it a swing. Um, and things came to a head in May 1849. McCready, uh, the Brit, was doing Macbeth at the Astor Palace Opera House, which was later the Astor Palace Theatre. Um, and either way, uh, whichever way you want to call it, alas, it's no longer with us. And it stood at the junction of Broadway and the Bowery in New York, where I've been with you. Um, yes. for our listeners, indeed, indeed, because we did a live, did a live episode there. Uh, Forrest, uh, would you credit it, was also doing Macbeth on the same night what are at the, the Broadway Theatre uh, nearby. And the Astor uh, had grand ambitions it was the kind of bastion of the establishment it was it had a dress code designed to put most people off you'd, you'd dress to go to the theater it was precisely where you might imagine this defeat champion of, of british culture to be playing uh, uh, you know it might as well have painted a target upon itself in the febrile see febrile atmosphere that developed between these two guys 7th of may 1849 forest's champions the americans supporting the american buy hundreds of tickets in the gods the highest part of the theater um, of the Astor, and they pelt McCready with rotten eggs uh, on the stage. Yeah, God bless him, McCready carries on, doesn't do the job. Uh, and so shoes follow, and then they start ripping the seats out of the theatre and throwing the seats <laughs> onto the stage. Well, that does what, it, and the, the show what do we think is it? What do we think is a deadlier projectile, a theatre seat or a half a sheep? I'm going to say the, the seat, especially I when thrown from the highest tier yeah, of yeah. the, the theatre. The, so we the, escalated the sheep, then. The we sheep escalated. is insulting. Um, yeah, you um, you definitely uh, you definitely escalated it. Although um, you had also done the sheep bit, that was also uh, oh, fair uh, point. <laughs> uh, that was also McCready. And um, same night, uh, Forrest as Macbeth in this rival production, um, and he says, 
this quote from uh, Macbeth, what rhubarb, senna, or what purgative drug will scour these English hens? And the audience rises to a man and woman and cheers. You know, what are we going to do to get rid of these English people? Plainly, it was all going to kick off. Uh, Macready, who, whatever his faults, was not lacking for guts. Remember, this is a guy who got pelted with seats coming from the highest points of a massive theatre. Took to the stage the next night. The show goes on. Right, shed tenth of May. No, aren't sheepish. No doubt, he said to himself, "Yeah, the show must go on." Admirable, but uh, I suggest hindsight says foolhardy. Um, I should point out um, for context: theatre riots were not that uncommon <laughs> at, at the time. <laughs> the theatre, with, with no disrespect meant to the stage today, and you and I both know some people who, who tread the boards. It was perhaps the most. It was perhaps the foremost form of mass entertainment in that age. And from time to time, audiences expressed their views, shared or divergent, uh, on both performance and politics in very vigorous ways. But anyway, so McCready is taking to the, to the stage. Everyone in New York knows we've had theatre riots before. This is, this is getting worse than the normal. Thus, that's the context for the militia the, uh, being called out before his performance even started. The police and mayoralty of New York City realized that they did just didn't have the policing power to stop what might happen. So let's, let me give you the list of what the militia um, deployed to the streets of New York in the 1840s looks like. It's the New York 7th Regiment of Foot, plus cavalry, hussars, artillery. You say overkill, they say can't be too careful. Let me just uh, stop you there. So let me yeah. stop you right there, because I want to introduce another new feature we're going to have to do from time to time. And I believe this will be the Hidden History Happy Hour glossary slash thesaurus alert. So would you please define for our viewers and listeners, what are hussars? Well, you may have forgotten, but we talked about the um, hussars in the story of uh, the um, ignominious retreat uh, conducted um, in uh, the battle that wiped out a clutch of um, Austrians. And we'll put the link to the show notes. But it was a dispute that started between in- infantrymen and hussars. Uh, and it, they was a, a memory of a they're kind of light class cavalry. They you, you might call them kind of skirmish horsemen. And uh, the term comes um, from somewhere in Eastern Europe, Hungary, Poland. Um, it's like light skirmishing cavalry. So the def- um, def- de- point is definitely far better armed than your average New York police officer. Yeah, well, correct. And backing them up, they've got heavy cavalry. They've got the actual cavalry. Uh, And so that's a force of 350 um, soldiers and and cavalrymen, plus 250 policemen. Mm. Uh, No doubt the mayor said to himself, well, you know, that'll do it. Uh, But generally speaking, there are good reasons not to put troops on the streets at times of concern about law and order. First, there's a distinction between civil society policing itself and the army imposing law upon it. And uh, yeah, there's a difference between civil and martial law, is my point. Second, once you press the go button, once yes. the army's deployed, it does what it does. The armies are for fighting. Anyway. Yes, and for, for, the, for the what I'm sure is extremely rare listener who thinks about signing off after the first story, we're going to talk about this issue of using the military for policing in much more detail in between our stories and in the next story. So stay tuned. Yeah. So that day, uh, 10th of May, um, all over the city of New York, handbills are given out, calling on people to come and express their views about the British in no uncertain terms. 
at the Astor Palace and say Macready's show was a sellout, but I fear not for the reasons that he might have wished. Macbeth opened on time at the Astor at 7.30 p.m. And that is the last thing that went to plan. Oh. A crowd of some 10,000 people had gathered around the theater and they bombarded it with stones, which were passed helpfully to the front as, uh, as with so many peaceful demonstrations today. Mm -hmm. And they fought in the streets with the police. And simultaneously, their allies inside the theatre tried and, and failed, I note, to set the building on fire. McCready, you won't believe this, finished the play. <laughs> he was pantomiming uh, because uh, you'd be shocked to hear he couldn't be heard above the pitched riot going on. And, and then he escaped. Say there was no amplification, right? Correct. And he, he then escaped the building. The army was, of course, called in, and you'll never guess what happened next. The soldiers were not received with open arms by the demonstrators. They were mopped, they were pushed, they were pelted uh, with stones, they were hurt. And then the army did what the army does. A line was formed. Warnings, which no doubt couldn't be heard above the din anyway, uh, were given and not heeded, and they opened fire. So order was restored, and as usual, the cost was high. Repeated point-blank volleys into a crowd have an obvious result. Definitive numbers are unclear, but somewhere between 20 to 30 rioters and bystanders, people there uh, died, and more than 120 people were injured. 70 policemen and 140 militiamen were injured. And I, of course, note that they had been on the receiving end of a crowd of 10,000 pelting them with rocks uh, before they opened fire. So those numbers are not that surprising. Now, for the arts, it's quite interesting. It's claimed that this dispute led to a bifurcation in the theatre between the world of the working man and the upper class, with Shakespeare, alas, falling from popularity as a form of entertainment. And I think that's a claim too far, but if there's even a scintilla to it, gosh, what a cost. Uh, and for the authorities, aversion to relying on the militia in such circumstances, relying on the militia in such circumstances, led, uh, you may have thought this predictable in some ways, led to the significantly increased firepower of the American police force, yeah. which is an escalation which plainly, I, I would say, has been seen to this day. So lesson from this story, Brian, if someone says he does a better, for example, Coriolanus than you, you might simply reply, you're just jealous. <laughs> or, you know, you could blank him because uh, you never know where the argument might go. Well, I think there's another lesson here, Alex. There's lots of lessons, but one is, and we've talked about this before, it's only funny until somebody loses an eye, right? So right. these guys obviously well, yeah, either, eyes, yeah. yeah, obviously they, these two actors either, you know, secretly ginned up this competition or at a minimum, they knew it was benefiting them and they participated in the ratcheting up of it until they got out, it got out of control. The tiger, it's an unfashionable view. I actually just I think they I think it's one of those things in the arts. There was no pretense about it. They genuinely wound up hating each other. At, uh, at that's no end. excuse for egging it on, but I think that's what happened at the end. But what but what we said before was the, while they were in the process of raising the temperature, they were also right. benefiting a lot. Create you know definitely money wise from it. Definitely. What I really want to focus on though is this uh, very very astute point that you made about the extreme danger in a democratic society, at least, of deploying the military as a police force. And here in the United States, most people will know we have something called the Posse Comitatus Act, which it's prohibits- It's in the West Wing. How could I miss it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, not ac accurately portrayed in, in, in all ways, but, you know, for dramatic license. But anyway, the idea is you don't 
take the military and put them on the streets to uh, do routine policing. And over various periods of our history, uh, various presidents have, uh, shall we say, tested the limits of that. But I think it's important, especially for our younger viewers, uh, to get some context here, because it, a lot of things these days, like communism, uh, like the Cold War, seem pretty abstract, and we don't really, a lot of us remember what they were like. So I would like to introduce another new feature of the Hidden History Happy Hour, and that is the Hidden History Happy Hour Dramatic Reading. And this episode of Dramatic Reading comes from a 1998 movie, American movie called The Siege, which is actually a good movie and still holds up, even though it predated uh, the war on terror. Denzel Washington, Bruce Willis, and Annette Bening. And essentially, without going into too much of the plot, because it's not relevant, what, what it's about is what happens when you deploy the military as a police force in a Western democratic city, as it happens in this case, Alex, directly to your story is New York City. New York City. So let me just set this up for you. There was a, in the plot of the film, there was a series of terrorist attacks on New York City escalating. Clearly law enforcement wasn't able to control it. A lot of politics came in. The people of New York actually wanted by three to one in polls, this is a fictional story, but in the show, three to one, they wanted the army to come in. And we're about to take you now to a White House Situation Room debate uh, between General Devereaux, played by Bruce Willis, who was an army general, but he was detailed, he was on loan to the National Security Council. So he was one of the president's uh, most senior military advisors and the White House chief of staff. And what's happening here is the Speaker of the House uh, the president pro tem of the Senate, the chief of staff, the senior leadership of two branches of our government, but not the president, are debating whether to recommend to the president to invoke uh, war powers uh, martial, and declare martial law in the city of New York. And Bruce Willis playing General Devereaux, <coughs> excuse me while I get into character, says, the army is a broadsword, not a scalpel. You do not want us in an American city, to which the chief of staff says. But hypothetically, how long would it take you to? Well, first of all, we only go if the president invokes the War Powers Act footnote. That's not the correct statute. I understand that, General. But let's imagine, though, for a moment that the order has been given. Twelve hours after the president gives the word, we can be on the ground. One light infantry division of 10,700 men, elements of the rapid force combined with special forces, Delta, APC, tanks, helicopters, and of course, the ubiquitous M16A1 assault rifle, a humble weapon until you see a man outside carrying one at your local bowling alley or 7-Eleven. It will be noisy. It will be scary, and it will not be mistaken for a VFW parade. That means civilian casualties. At a minimum, it's a drunk private joyriding in a hunter, Hummer who runs down an old lady in Greenpoint. At a maximum, make no mistake, we will hunt down the enemy, we will find the enemy, and we will kill the enemy. And no card-carrying member of the ACLU is more dead set against it than I am which is why I urge you, no, I implore you not to consider this option. And scene. And so, of course, what happens is the chief of staff, I didn't include this in your script, Alex, but the chief of staff says, well, that's exactly, General, why the president will say you're the man to carry this out because you have these concerns about civil liberties. And as you might imagine, things go terribly awry, concentration camps, anti-Muslim executions, massive torture, and... Uh, no good comes of it. 
So it's funny in a way, but it's not to be trifled with. I mean, the military does what the military does, as you said in the last story. Yeah, I, I took that line actually from um, somebody who told uh, me that uh, there was a newish person signed up under the uh, auspices of how we go about recruiting people into our armed forces today who was asked by some grizzled old long commissioned officer, you know, what do you think? What do you think the army's for? He's new, no doubt, destined to be commissioned. Um, cadet said, uh, oh, peacekeeping and you know, uh, ensuring that disaster relief can be delivered. And the sergeant interrupts and says, no, son, the army is for fighting. Right? And that's what people should remember. It is a blunt tool. Well, as, as fortune or timing would have it, I was reading an article literally this morning about some suggestions from some of our, uh, let's say, more woke uh, members of Congress and, and advocacy groups here in the United States, that probably that Navy SEAL training is just a little too tough. And people should not be subjected to that, those rigors. And we should really like chill that out a little bit. And needless to say, uh, hundreds of veterans have come out with another opinion. Yeah, I think I'd have an, another opinion to that too. And the, the answer to people who point out that most people can't pass tests for elite forces isn't to say well let's lower the standards it's that elite forces are not for most people they and shouldn't pass uh, on which by for any avoids of doubt and if if you're listening rather than <laughs> watching on video you might have made this mistake ever i know no one else will i do not include myself as one who would cut the mustard <laughs> no. in those uh, you don't have to laugh quite so much brian uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, I, i'm clearly not not one that would pass any of those tests and um, I find that sort of dumbing down of standards really dispiriting, I'm afraid, uh, but also not particularly surprising. Right. But one way to think of it is one of the things that the world has learned, I think much to the world's benefit, is how hollowed out and unfightable the Russian army is, the vaunted you know, steel bear. And in their case, I think it's largely because of corruption and um, you know, the commissars having to report progress, even when there isn't any. But I do think in the West, we need to be careful that we don't, for whatever great humanitarian political objectives, put our forces in the position where they can't fight when they have to. And even worse, where the members of the unit don't feel like they can depend on their fellows, right? So one right. of the points that was made in the opposition to this reducing of the standards of the Navy SEALs is if you're already in a combat unit that's going to go out and do these incredibly dangerous missions, you need to know absolutely when a new person joins your unit that they will be able to handle it. Yeah. And if you don't know that, you're not going to fight correctly. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Well, with that background on deploying uh, military as a police force, let's move on to the day of the tiles. And oh, glossary alert here, Alex, also. Uh, I think you're going to have to explain, at least to your North American audience, what the standard uh, understanding of a knight of the tiles is in your country. Uh, okay. So I made the joke in the book that a knight on the tiles means going out and getting a few in you. Uh, and uh, when I wrote the book in lockdown, that I uh, had a bit of particular resonance because of course none of us were allowed we out so we couldn't we couldn't go down the pub and we couldn't uh, or a bar and, and and have a few uh, but the day of the tiles is quite different and uh, depending on which end of, uh, of the exchange you're on rather painful yes ancient city of grenoble uh, 
Grenoble, as the French might call it, but we have pronunciations for a reason. We don't say Paris, we don't say München. Exactly. Grenoble was the capital of the old proud region in France of uh, Dauphin, in the southeast of that country. And the possession of that region by French royalty came with the condition that the heir to the throne would be called Dauphin after it. And that is pretty much exactly... Uh, the tradition that we have in the United Kingdom, not that requirement, but with that that title, um, we have that that same tradition in the United Kingdom with uh, the Prince of Wales, the heir to the throne. Anyway, Louis the Sixteenth uh, did not have a good run of things, uh, what with being the only French uh, monarch to be executed and everything, uh, and of course presided over the end of a thousand years of uh, royal rule and so forth, which might be regarded as a bad result if you're French nobility, but he could hardly have appreciated the way that things were going to kick off in the way they did in the southeastern corner of the realm at Grenoble. People of Dauphin were impoverished by France's ongoing financial crisis. Interesting resonance, by the way, uh, (laughs) certain things today. Harvests were bad, bread was expensive, and the first estate, clerical, and the second estate, the the aristocratic, uh, indicated no willingness to give up their privileges. So the third estate, that is the bourgeois and the peasants, looked to take things into their own hands. And as is so often the way with new movements, they sought to ground their demands in the heritage of an older tradition so as to lend their position credibility and authority thus the uh, old estates of the province of Dauphin served as the pretext for their gathering and basically proto-republican sentiment covered up with saying we want to restore the estates of our proud province locked in a headlong kind of death spiral of absolutism and short-sighted self-interest both the crown and the nobles and the clergymen in their in the orbit of the crown refused to yield an inch on anything i mean nowadays i think they'd be spinning the notion that they were in listening mode and they're perhaps going to have a an interminable judge-led inquiry and the ancien regime might well have recovered with a bit of that spin but anyway so it was the crown sent troops to grenoble to quell this movement and things came to uh, quite a famous head on the 7th of june 1788 there are good reasons that we have explored in this podcast not to put the troops on the streets at a time of concern about law and order uh we covered that vital distinction between the civilian populace policing itself and having law imposed upon it but moreover as we have reflected upon once the army is deployed the army does what the army does yeah and thus it was the elite regiment of the royal navy sought to suppress protesters and the sight of one of them bayonetting an old man uh, spurred the growing crowds in Grenoble to fury and, and bit, groups of the troops in the faces of these crowds, they didn't know what to do with them. You know, uh, what, the troops were outnumbered by the revolting citizens of Grenoble, and they, they were split up into the streets increasingly. And they're otherwise unable to carry out their orders to maintain control. So the army does what the army does. They open fire, um, open fire into the crowds. Many rioters took to the rooftops of buildings on the streets down which the soldiers were seeking to quell uh, dissent. And a rain of roof tiles torn from uh, the roofs from all sides soon smashed down upon the forces of the crown, hence day of the tiles. And such circumstances are all but impossible uh, for law enforcement. The mob out of control cannot be reasoned with, but it is made up in this example of their fellow Frenchmen whose demands they might well share on yeah. another day. And the troops gradually yielded. Or maybe control. even that day. Yes, even maybe even that it maybe even that day indeed. Uh, and of course, unwilling basically to you know, 
uh, obliterate them uh, rightly, of course. Uh, the troops gradually yielded control of much of the town to the mob, but not the arsenal, never the arsenal. Uh, and the judges who were due to attend the meeting of the estates that had been convened, which I mentioned, and whose potential departure for Grenoble had ridiculously kind of served as the pretext um, for the uprising, were pressed back into the palace by a crowd who were carrying flowers and singing the praises of parliament. And the army, realising it was on to a loser, gave permission for the estates to meet for as long as that meeting took place uh, outside Grenoble at the beauty, uh, beautiful um, Chateau de Vézille, which is today home of the Museum of the French Revolution, which gives you a clue. So it all started here. The compromise was canny and astute, uh, although the authority the army had to broker that compromise um, is rather elusive in the history books. And these events uh, therefore constituted both the first violent outbreak in what became the French Revolution and its first public meetings, which saw demands both for a national parliament and an end to national sovereignty. And it was a movement that changed Europe. So I, I think it's worth knowing about the Day of the Tiles. I've got a couple of postscripts to it, Brian. First, it's amazing how much people preferred not to blame the monarchy for France's yes. predicament. They instead held supposedly bad servants of the crown responsible. And the crowds at Grenoble even sang praises to the king during their protests. Even at that point, Louis could have rescued things with a slightly different approach. Secondly, in a coup these days, seized the airport, seized the radio station, and a French anti-monarchic protest seized the cathedral. The crowds rang the bells uh, of the cathedral and signed for the peasantry around Grenoble to come to the aid of those who were protesting. And I think that symbolism is rather uh, potent. And uh, thirdly, um, I came across this story uh, because Raphael Sabatini uh, wrote a historical novel called Scaramouche. And to the disappointment of some, I think <laughs> that is not the novelization of Bohemian Rhapsody. Scaramouche, <laughs> Scaramouche, Scaramouche, something. And you do the Fandango. I don't, I don't remember yeah. the, the middle word. Will you do the Fandango? Ah, yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, so a couple of things. One is, uh, is it fair to say then for want of a tile, a kingdom was lost or do you feel it would have no, happened anyway? I, I, because of the approach that Louis and his court took, if it wasn't Grenoble, it would have been somewhere yeah. else. Now, yes, that was the most proximate um, situation and the you know, deploying an armed force in crowded streets and you know, at the end of a bayonet seeking to enforce the law was going to end badly but if it hadn't happened there if somehow that had been brokered differently it would have happened somewhere else uh, unless there may be echoes you might think for, for modern discussions about other uh, total rulers enforcing their their will but unless the the leader had changed uh, i don't think it was going to go any different way in the end yeah that's probably right i can't help but think about to your point that the the public the the peasants the citizens the proletariat uh almost at all costs refused to blame the monarch and they right. always blamed the downstream leadership that's is exactly what's happening with russian propaganda today if you look at everything even these even these um uh, broadcasters and local authorities in russia who probably are dead already but who have had the the guts to come out and criticize the war almost always say it's the corrupt oh. Our generals ill-advised yeah. yeah it's if only vladimir could be calling all the shots we'd be fine 
There's yeah, a lot of that going on. So lest our viewers and listeners think that this is a pre-scripted show, I want to show a note that I wrote while we were talking just now, while you were telling ah, me. Never the Arsenal. Never yeah. the Arsenal. And this was to remind me to talk about the Seattle police station. So as our loyal viewers and listeners know, I live near Seattle, Washington. We went through the um, protests of a few years ago and the defund the police movement and very famously or infamously, depending on how you count our mayor uh, in the middle of one of these very parallel street led protests where tens of thousands of, or I don't know how many, 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 many protesters surrounded a police precinct in Seattle. She ordered the police to abandon the building. And which is did. full of weaponry which is what full oats is an arsenal and they did and so for weeks you might remember or you can look this up uh there was a whole neighborhood of seattle that was essentially a a zone of anarchy it was like a thunderdome down there there was no authority people were getting murdered when and was, was this uh 2019 2000 summer the summer of black lives matter is when it was we'll put it in the show notes but the the, that was sort of the beginning of the end of the defund the police movement in Seattle is when she ordered them to abandon their station, and they did. Well, look, I mean, I remember Seattle being very badly governed in that time. Whatever one's views of the protest, of course, and there was there were valuable points to be made in the conversation about it. There's no the notion that you should defund the police was, to my mind, absurd, uh, and and people had taken a laudable uh, political notion that Black Lives Matter and attached it to some far yes. left radical ideas, defunding the police, ending capitalism is what BLM UK says, which is yeah. why you might think they, they don't quite enjoy the support that they, they once did. But anyway, I don't, I recall Seattle being badly managed. I do not recall that. That's extraordinary. Yeah. The mayor ordered the police to abandon the precinct and this shocker, led to an extreme backlash a year and a half later when the murder rate in Seattle skyrocketed and all of a sudden the people said, let's refund the police. Yeah, what a concept. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Look, uh, we, I got wanted to say one thing before we wrap, uh, yes, which is that uh, a couple of weeks ago, we released an episode about uh, the strangest chess tournament uh, in history. Right. Uh, the uh, Korchnoi, Karpov, Extravaganza, Earthquakes, Lightning, Death Rays, Hypnotism, Yogurt, uh, and Attempted Murderers, and so forth. Filipino Sorcerers. Exactly. Black Magic, uh, the chess tournament with fatalities. And about three or four days after we released that episode, the reigning chess champion, Magnus Carlsen, accused one of his rivals of being a cheat. I give, I'm not saying whether that's true or not, of course, but some very spicy details, including potentially the use of a vibrating sex toy secreted on that young man's person, being the allegation of communication <laughs> via his fundament, uh, was giving his him some <laughs> fundamental uh, chess moves uh, at different times. Uh, I mean, you know, chess has not hit the headlines for some years. We do an episode, this immediately happens. Coincidence? I leave you to decide. I don't want to say we inspired this, if you will, movement, but what I will say <laughs> is we need to have Willard Foxton back on to talk about the merits of the sex toy chess match. That is a very good idea. I'll speak to Willard. Let's do that. And in the meantime, and Brian, gentlemen, what a great It's great to be back. Alex, thanks for yeah. filling in for me while I was working. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cheers. Nice to have you back from Italy. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com.
We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.